0: have you copies of scripture if you'll turn uh, to Matthew uh, chapter chapter 1 and 2. As you do so some of you may be wondering you haven't seen me up close why my glasses are jacked up like an old man and uh, I had surgery on my ear on Thursday and uh, so if you see me uh, take this hope it's not distracting and do this uh, Janice was gracious enough to try to get up and bandage it up to where it wasn't so unsightly. And there's a little bit of drainage there, nothing bad, but uh, had cancer back there. And uh, they, uh, they worked on me on Thursday, and I'm grateful for uh, the care there. Today is our second week uh, in Matthew's Gospel. For those who were here last week, and for those who uh, were not, we set out to answer the question last week that we believed that um, Matthew was was trying to get to, and that is, who is Jesus? Uh, and here's what we concluded: According to Matthew's gospel, there, uh, primarily in the first and second chapter, uh, Jesus is God's son. He is David's son. He's Abraham's son. He's the Savior of His people and He is Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to remind you that in stressing these things, Matthew was giving a specific account of the Gospel. Not a different Gospel. But we read all four Gospels and all four of them are a little different yet their message is the same. And we mentioned that he was very specific about the things that he wanted to say about Jesus. Uh, So specific that it is connected directly with uh, history, uh, the, the whole literary piece of the way he writes it and puts it together, and even the theological context. Uh, but I don't want you to be confused, though, in the course of this to begin to thinking like we have contemporary concerns, and certainly we do. Uh, efforts that are often being made to rewrite history or to reshape things favorably or unfavorably toward a particular group. That's not Matthew's point. None of the Gospels are pointed in that way. We don't have to give, we don't have to give consideration to that. You know why? Well, the reason why is that Matthew, uh, along with all the other Gospel writers and all the other authors of Scripture, are not the ultimate author. The ultimate author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. God giving His Word to men who record it. Uh, There's a term that has been used. You don't hear uh, about it a lot anymore, but it is called the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. It's a big old word and sounds kind of foreign to us, but it just simply means that God gave all the words to the human authors to communicate what he intended to communicate. And we're offering that up as being true. With that being true, therefore we can have confidence that all Scripture is true and that all Scripture is authoritative. Now I want you to know this has a great bearing on the way that we will look at the text today. So, Having you copies of Scripture and hopefully you have it turned there now to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to give attention to to chapter 1 verses 18 through chapter 2 verse 23. We're going to kind of restrict our scope to those verses. I know the worship guide pushes us into chapter 3. And if you're wondering what we'll deal with next week, we'll deal with, ne- with chapter 3. But in our text today, I want to point out a few things before we even begin to read it. And we won't read it all in one piece as we normally do. We'll look at it in sections. But what I want you to, what I want you to, to, to focus on and to give consideration to is that in this text, Matthew specifically records or gives points to the fact that there were four dreams. And they're not just any dreams. They're not like the dream uh, that I had last night or that you had last night. These dreams were planned and orchestrated by God in which he clearly communicates a certain course of action regarding a particularly important event that related to his son. So four dreams in this short period. And three of the four dreams, an angel of the Lord actually appears. And when that angel comes, he appears and he speaks to Joseph. I want you to think about that for a moment. In addition to the four dreams, Matthew records five instances of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. I want to think about that. In these few verses, which in real time cover Two to four years, maybe? Maybe? Matthew records four significant divine dreams and five instances of fulfilled prophecies that almost all of them are connected in some way with the dreams. And the prophecies fulfilled are all centered in Jesus. All centered in Jesus, who in the text... At the time that Matthew is, not at the time that Matthew's writing it, but in the in the point in the time that Matthew is pointing to, this Jesus is still a small child. I want you to consider this. Do you suppose God is trying to get the attention of Matthew's audience? With all of that packed in this time period when Jesus is still an infant and a small child and all of this is taking place and Matthew gives all of this information in this, in this short window of Jesus' life before he has ever done anything that we would consider miraculous, do you suppose that God is trying to get the attention of Matthew's audience? Better yet, do you suppose he is trying to get our attention. To capture our attention. I suspect as I read and read and read and I kept uncovering and uncovering and continued to just be blessed over and over again that this came to my mind. I suspect that we have glossed over the significance of what God intends for us to see. So this morning... Not that I'm seeking to correct that. I just want us to give some specialized attention, as we said we would last week. Some specialized attention uh, to uh, this part of Scripture and what Matthew is communicating. And here's why. And I want you to think about this. This is Joshua. This isn't Matthew. But I was reminded of this. And I don't know if you have this highlighted in your Scripture, your Bibles, but you should. Joshua said this to Israel. He said not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. His closing words, some of his closing words before he dies, he points Israel back to that same statement And in in chapter 23 in verse 14 of Joshua, he says, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass. And he says it again. He reiterates it. Not one of them has failed I think Matthew is pointing us to pay attention to the promises that come in the Lord Jesus Christ because none of them will fail none of them will fail why is it important well Matthew has at the heart of his writing and the heart of this gospel the good news of salvation having come in Christ And at the heart of this, he is concerned about the genuine conversion of men and women. Concerned about your conversion and mine. Concerned about your faith and mine. Concerned about what you profess and mine. He's not concerned about a prayer that we prayed. He's not concerned about an emotional catharsis that we may have had. He is concerned about genuine conversion. And at the heart of genuine conversion is faith. Faith in the atoning work of this one that Matthew continues to just shove out there in front of us in every way, pointing us to the fact this is the one. This is the one. This is why. This is how you can know. Why? To bolster our faith. To help us see and understand that God fulfills His promises. To hold us up. To keep us in the faith. To keep pointing us to the fact that no, it can't be that. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, the Apostle Paul said, and hearing through the Word of God. We're going to look at that message specifically that Jesus and John the Baptist preached. We're going to look at that next week. But I want you to know that it rests in God's Word. We come here. We started this morning. Why do we every week start with God's Word? Well, you don't need to hear a thing from me or any other pastor or any other individual. You don't need to hear any of that. That has no ultimate bearing on your life. It has no ultimate bearing on our worship. What we do need to hear from is we need to hear from God's Word because God has breathed it and it is for us. And it points us to who He is as Adam did this morning over and over again as we read the 68th Psalm. it been a while since you've probably read the 68th Psalm. Probably didn't expect to read all of those verses in the context of a a worship service today. But we needed to hear those because over and over again God is telling us, here's who I am. Here's what I do. Here's what I've promised. Here's who I am. Here's what I do. Why? Because we need to hear that. And that is what Matthew is doing over again. Pointing us to the redemptive work of God. God keeping His promises is important to His work. His work in granting us faith. And our ongoing faithfulness. And that's the kind of the perspective that we have. Last week, Jesus is the fulfillment of what? Two covenants. The Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. What's in a covenant? There's a promise. In all of those covenants, there are promises. Promises that God is making. And He is coming along. And He is fulfilling them. I want you to remember, these promises were made thousands of years before. Now, if I make a promise to you, you're looking for me to keep the promise pretty soon. I was thinking about it yesterday. Uh, Some of us in here have mortgages. Some may not have mortgages. uh, But they're they're kind of two pieces to a mortgage. Uh, There is a promissory note. And then there is the deed of trust. You know what the promissory note does? It says, I promise to pay this money back in this length of time. There's a promise being made. And it may be to be paid back in 10 years. It may be to be paid back in 15. It may be to be paid back in 30 years. But you're making a promise along the way. And though it is not fulfilled, there is the intent that it will be fulfilled. Now sometimes we keep our promises and sometimes we don't keep our promises. The point Matthew is making is that God always keeps His promises. How long had it taken him to begin to keep His promise? Well, from Adam to Jesus was about 4,000 years. No less than 4,000 years. Well, why do we track it back to Adam? Well, remember what we have looked at in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. What we call the proto-evangelium. I will put my enmity between you and the woman and between you. Speaking, this is the curse, part of the curse that's coming to Satan, to the, to the, to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head. And you'll bruise his heel. And some 4,000 years later, this one Jesus, who is the head stomper of Satan, comes on the scene. So thousands of years pass from the promise to the fulfillment. And just remember this. This is to set the context. At the time of Jesus' birth, Israel had had no fresh prophetic word from God for 500 years in other words a half of a millennium had passed and there had been absolute silence from God in regards to another word he, he didn't in 500 years no one had come with a word from God even to point back and say remember what i said back here For 500 years. Now they weren't without testimony. They had the Word of God. They had the Old Testament. And remember by this time, as we said last week, by this time it had been translated into Greek. The the language of most of the world at that time. They had access to the Scriptures. And they still had the temple worship. The Jews did to point them. But we are reminded that a lot of that had been lost in the midst of corruptions and distortions. So God comes and He speaks, and this is Matthew's point, He speaks loudly in dreams. And He speaks loudly in the fulfillment of these prophecies and promises. I want us to look at them. Look in verse 18. We read it last week, we'll pick back up on it do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. Okay? Now, that's what is heard. Now comes Matthew. Alright? He just gave us the narrative, the account. Now comes Matthew. Matthew. Matthew says all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The dream comes to Joseph and in the dream the angel says, Joseph, fulfill your commitment to Mary. Yes, she's carrying a child. But it's not another man's child. It's not another man's child. She has remained faithful to you. The child she is carrying is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then we read, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he reaches back under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prompts Matthew to reach back to Isaiah chapter 7. We know it's chapter 7 and verse 14. The Holy Spirit directs Matthew's attention to this. This is the very first fulfillment statement that Matthew addresses. Why do you suppose this is the first? He could have gone back to the proto-evangelium. Couldn't he? He could have addressed a specific text, could have addressed... A specific text of, of promise, but he just points us back in general to two covenants, but he comes and he points to this, the virgin birth. And he goes all the way back to the Old Testament. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Some speculate that Matthew invented the virgin birth in order to try to shape his story and to fabricate, if you will, what is taking place so that he can come come along here with some kind of a, a slam dunk, if you will, of how Christ is something special. Reaching back into Isaiah and dragging a text out of Isaiah to bring it forward as if it doesn't apply. But that's not what happened. The Holy Spirit draws Matthew to consider the prophetic word of Isaiah. Moreover, he prompts him to quote it, not in Hebrew, which he could have, not even looking at the Hebrew word, but prompts him to go back to the Septuagint and to bring it forward from the Septuagint. Why? Well, the Hebrew word used in the Isaiah text is a word for young woman not a bad word. It's not the wrong word. Most of the time it's used to reference a young woman of marrying age who is a virgin. But it's not always used that way. So why is it so important that he reached back to the Septuagint? Well, when a group of Hebrew scholars gathered even beginning 300 years before Christ and began translating the Old Testament into Greek, when they got to this text, they understood the Hebrew word. They understood how it had been used. They understood what it could mean. They understood and believed it to mean a certain thing. And when they reached into the Greek language to translate it, they selected a word that would remove most, if not all, of the doubt of the intent of that scripture, and remind you, they were not Matthew, and they were not at that time Christians. They reached back, and they brought this forward and put it in the forefront, and Matthew says, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Why is that significant? It points to the supernatural work of God. But it goes beyond that. You do away with the virgin birth and what have we done away with? We have done away with the God-man. You do away with the virgin birth. You do away with the God-man. And we need the God-man. We need the God-man to atone for us. We need the God-man to intercede for us. Matthew is wanting to make sure that his audience understands that God has promised to come and to deliver. God has promised to come and to deliver. But he also takes into account the dilemma with that. It has to be a God-man. Isaiah chapters 7 and 8 deal with the threat posed, and this is where this text comes from, by foreign powers to God's people. And Isaiah brings warning and comfort to Israel's king. And in the center of these, they symbolically named children. He's warning of impending judgment in these names. And there's a promise of future restoration as he talks about a remnant will return. And then he comes up and he makes no mistake about using the word Emmanuel. God with us. How is it that God can be with us only, only as God comes in the incarnation? Matthew's use of Isaiah then is not just some proof text of a virgin birth. But it is a prophecy that is fulfilled. God's presence is realized only in the Christ child. You get that? The promise of God abiding with man as a man and identifying with humanity so that he is able to represent us to serve us as our second Adam. That's what is at stake. And Matthew is certain to make sure that we get that and that his audience gets that. But there's a second fulfillment. Let's look in chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Where the Christ was to be born, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And what do we hear? And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel pointing back to Micah. So take your copies of Scripture and turn to Micah and look in chapter 5. And let's read this. Let's give a fair representation of it. Okay? In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 we hear But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now hold your place there and go back to Matthew's Gospel. And I'm only pointing this out because we want to get a fair representation of what Matthew's doing here. Matthew says, O you, O Bethlehem and the land of Judah. You say, well, that's not, that's not there. Matthew takes that verse, if you will, and paraphrases it and puts it together because his intent is to do what? His intent is to make sure that his audience and that we know that Jesus, this king who is establishing this kingdom, has as his rightful legal place standing in the lineage of David and that the Messiah has been promised to come from Bethlehem of Judah. Bethlehem of Judea. And that is the reason that Matthew points us there. And then he gives us some commentary on it. Because we didn't... We didn't read this part, who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people. No, Matthew points us back then to help us to understand that this shepherd is one who will shepherd like King David. He'll shepherd like King David. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2. David is beginning to be anointed king in Hebron. And here's what the people say, and it recalls and points back to David. He said, In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you, David, who led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord has said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Why is this important? Matthew wants his audience and wants us to understand That this one who is king was born in Bethlehem is going to be a king-shepherd like David. But better. He's going to be the great shepherd. Jesus will be unlike the shepherds that were mentioned in Ezekiel 34. No, he will not feed on the sheep. But he will lead them by going to be slaughtered himself so that they might feed on him. The third prophecy, if you will, let's look. Beginning in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I also may come and worship him. There again is the second dream. Okay? Being warned in, warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. And Now when they had departed behold an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Third dream. And said, rise Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him and he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Listen to the prophets. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then the immediate text goes back to Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. So let's turn to Hosea chapter 11 and let's look at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. You remember anything about Hosea? You remember anything about him? Kind of an unusual situation with Hosea. Remember Hosea and his story? Hosea, on direction from God, married a prostitute. Married a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. Hosea was to represent God, and God did all of this to give a picture of his covenant with Israel. And Israel's breaking covenant with him and being unfaithful. Hosea was representing God and his covenant love. Gomer would be an example of Israel who was constantly seeking after other gods. And after Hosea married Gomer, what did she do? They had children and then she went and sold herself back into prostitution. a Beautiful picture there. Hosea went and purchased her, if you will, on the auction block. After all of that, he purchased her off of the auction block, and he brought her home, and he loved her. Hosea was, in this picture, by the intent of God, doing what God was doing to Israel. That was delivering Israel. Hosea was a deliverer. Chapter 11 and verse 1, we read that God was delivering His Son, Israel, out of Egypt. What's Matthew's point? His point is is that Jesus is inaugurating another exodus. He is delivering His people from their sin. There is this spotlight put on this prophetic word so that the people would not misunderstand that God's intent and Christ was to deliver. And that their going to Egypt was representative of their deliverance from Egypt all of those hundreds of years ago. You say, well, was it? their deliverance that significant? The Holy Spirit thought so. Gave it to Matthew. And Matthew gives it to us. Let's look at the fourth prophecy. We'll go on and pick up in... Read from there, in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled, hear this again, it's important. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Take your Bibles if you will and turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Hold your place there. I want you to know this is a significant picture that Matthew is drawing. Occasionally, if you look at the History Channel or, or watch uh, some things that may be in the news, you'll see pictures of, the, of World War II and the Holocaust, of what took place. One of the things, that and I was reminded of that this week as I was watching the news and looking at the refugees, uh, that were seeking to flee uh, the Ukraine. And there were family members gathered at the border trying to flee. And they're leaving family. Situation is a little bit different, a good bit different during the Holocaust, because families were taken and they were split and they were divided up and they were taken to different concentration camps. Some of them went and lived in prison. Others were taken and executed. Matthew reaches back to Jeremiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for that very picture. Ramah was a city about five miles north of Jerusalem. During the time of the deportation uh, where uh, most of the inhabitants of the area, though not all, were taken away into Babylon, Ramah was the staging place where the forces of Babylon brought all of the people and though they didn't have trains and buses to send them out on, they would bring the families to Ramah and it was there that they divided the families. And they carried children in this direction never to see their parents again. And they carried parents in this direction and never see their children again. They carried wives in this direction and never see their husbands again. And husbands in this direction and never see their children again. And that's the point that he's pointing, he's pointing back to that. And he talks about Rachel weeping for her children. Well, why Rachel? Well, what do we know about Rachel? Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved most. But she was also the one who struggled with bearing children. And she cried out to God wanting children. And God gave her two sons. Joseph who was Jacob's favored son, and then Benjamin. Well now remember, Benjamin, when he is getting his inheritance, when the tribe of Benjamin, coming from Benjamin, gets their inheritance, he gets his inheritance in the southern kingdom. Joseph doesn't get an inheritance. His inheritance is split between his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Ephraim becomes representative of the northern kingdom. And here we have this picture that Matthew draws on. Rachel's sons, both north and south, being taken away by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. And look at what it says. And she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod strikes a hard blow, destroys all the male children in that region two years old and younger. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew reaches back and draws on this text in Jeremiah 31, speaking of the suffering that took place during the deportation. What is he pointing to? Well, he's primarily talking about the suffering connected there. Because here was this community of people who were left weeping and mourning and crying because their young sons, their hope, their future, their progeny had all been taken. And he says, And thus it was like the deportation. When we went back and looked at the genealogy last week, what was in the center of the genealogy? the deportation. He's calling back on that time of suffering, but he's calling back on that time of suffering. But what what comes on the other side of that? What comes on the other side of this suffering? We'll go to Jeremiah chapter 31. You're there. Let's hear what comes on the other side of it. I love this text. Verse 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. In other words, God is saying, I haven't forgotten him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of the suffering that has taken place there around Bethlehem and around Jerusalem, it seems like it is hopeless because everyone else during this time, they have no clue what is going on. All they see and understand is the slaughter of their sons. The slaughtering of all of these babies. Soldiers coming into the home, taking the child out of the home and taking them out and killing them. Some in front of their parents, others not. And they're weeping over all of this tragedy that is taking place. But on the other side of this tragedy, away in Egypt, is what? Their hope. Their hope. Jeremiah goes on, verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm. Listen, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And in verse 31, listen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Pointing back to Hosea. Hear it? Hear that, hear that language again? As I was their husband, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point go back to Matthew look in chapter 1 what did we hear the angel told Joseph she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save His people from their sin. You get it. Matthew is pointing back to the suffering. Yes, but more importantly, that on the other side of that suffering, on the other side of the suffering, there is hope and comfort and help. There is deliverance. And then finally, verse nineteen. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Fourth dream now, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the children's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That he would be called a Nazarene. Joseph, it's safe to go home. Joseph, don't go to Judea. Go to Galilee. And Matthew said, he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. I want you to notice two things. First, Matthew doesn't reference a specific prophet or text. So it's not there. Okay? Second, he doesn't acknowledge one prophet. He says the prophets. You say, well, that's just a general statement. Well, let's think about it for a minute. As soon as I read this, this time, looking at it from the perspective I was looking at it, I remembered where did we hear about Nazareth? Well, John's gospel. Didn't we? When we were studying John's gospel, didn't we read about Nazareth there? Right at the very beginning of John's gospel, Philip comes to Nathanael and says, Nathanael, we found him, the one that Moses talked about. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what were the words out of Nathanael's mouth? There ain't no way. Any good thing come from Nazareth? In other words, Nazareth is the armpit of all of Israel and everyone that comes out of there is part of that armpit. Nothing good can come from that. They were looked upon, down upon. They were scorned. They were rejected even so much that Nathanael, before he ever sees Jesus, even when he's told, this is the one that Moses promised, he says, there ain't no way. Can't be. Not coming from Nazareth. Can't be. What's being said? Well, Matthew is pointing to things like these prophets said. a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Who is this one? The virgin-born shepherd king who led out of Egypt thousands of years before, who himself went into Egypt as a child and was led out to point to deliverance, the one who brings comfort and help and security and strength on the backside of his own suffering and on the backside of our suffering here not suffering for our sin because he has done that the one who gives life and hope the shepherd who does not lead his sheep to the slaughter but who himself who himself was slaughtered on our behalf God keeps his promises we'll look at those throughout the course of Matthew He always keeps his promises.